Our text this morning is verse 19 of Ephesians 3, and in particular this expression, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, friends, I don't know if you've ever really spent much time thinking on a verse like that, but it is truly remarkable to know the love of Christ, to be filled with the fullness of God. I wonder if we truly know anything of this. If we were to examine our own minds and our hearts, would we be able to say that we are familiar with this sense of wholeness that Paul is speaking of, the fullness and the wholeness that comes from God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're speaking here of something very deep and very real, a, a genuine experience of the Lord. We live in an age, my dear friends, that is marked by emptiness. You know, you look at the people all around and they're desperately trying to fill the emptiness that is in their lives, trying to fill it with something. And, you know, when all the money has been spent, when all the pleasures have passed, when the entertainment has ended and the pubs and clubs have closed their doors and people go home, what greets them? What do they find? A deep emptiness in their lives. And they know it and they can't escape it. They're trying to fill it, but they, they can't fill it. They never will without Christ. And we live in this age which is marked like that. But there is something wonderful which God can do and he does it in the gospel. And we find it here in this verse. He can do something to those who trust in Christ that nothing and no one else can do. He can fill our life with a, with a fullness and with a satisfaction that nothing can take away. And I want you to see what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking of here. Now, if you look at the beginning of the passage in chapter 3 and verse 1, and also actually in chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Paul explains that he is a prisoner. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, and then chapter 4, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And so he's not in some palace, he's not in some fine place, he's not in some you know, great church or meeting place or synagogue or anything like that. He is languishing in a prison. He's cold, hungry, beaten, kept in the dark amongst all these criminals. And yet even there amidst all of these difficulties, he is able to speak about a fullness. You know, even though he, he must have, have known all those things and the physical challenges and the, the emotional upheaval, all the things that come with being imprisoned wrongly, notice there's no complaining. There's no elaborating on the difficulties of the situation that he's in, just that he's in prison. And he's in prison because of the gospel. And so he's in these trying and difficult circumstances, but even then... He doesn't feel the emptiness that the rest of the world feels. And in verses 18 to 19, he, he talks about knowing the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, about being filled with all the, the fullness of God. It's in that context. He said, well, what an expression. You know, did you ever come across a sentence that was more astonishing than that. He speaks of, of something that we can know which goes beyond knowledge, as it were. Something that is beyond the possibility of, of knowing to completion, but it is still there, and we feel it. We experience it. So I wonder if you know what this fullness is. 
You know, maybe you've come this morning and you're finding things really difficult at the moment. Maybe you're in your own set of trying circumstances. Maybe you're enduring some trial or, or maybe some disappointment or some sadness in your experience. You know, maybe you're, you're struggling with, with illness and maybe illness of the mind or of the body, but God in the gospel can give to his people in such circumstances and situations an experience which can only be described in terms of our text as being filled with all the fullness of God. You know, Paul was the man that he was because of sovereign grace and the sustaining hand of God. And this great promise, this great reality that he speaks of is not just confined to him, but it is for all true believers, all those who really love the Lord Jesus Christ. It is something that we can know and experience for ourselves. And so what are we to make of it? Well, firstly, we must see something, the, 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 the love of Christ that he possesses. We need to understand something of that love. And I want to try and sort of expand on that for you a little bit. I want you to see that the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost, loves God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And this love is a special, unique love. It is the love of the three divine persons of the Godhead for one another. And there is no love comparable to that in all of its immensity and its glory. And friends, I, I need to say something that, that needs to be made clear. We must never think that God is lonely. You know, we know that God is one. We know that there is no other God than the one God, but we go wrong if we think of him as lonely. And sadly, there are preachers today who make that terrible error. They, they give that impression, and some say, I've heard one this week, well, God created this world because he was lonely, and he wanted someone to love him and to, to worship him, and he, he needed that. He needed people to, to love him. It's entirely wrong. And it is a dreadful, unbiblical misrepresentation of God. You see, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He is not lacking in any way. God has an infinite fullness in his own being. He's not lonely. And the Bible says that he is also God in three persons. There's a lovely fellowship amongst those three divine persons. You know, they, they love each other with a perfect love. So the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. Perfect relationship and fellowship and love. It's very beautiful, you know. If you were to, to go to the Scriptures and to see how these three holy divine persons refer to one another in the Scriptures, you know, the, the references to one another are full of honor and respect. For example, the father speaks of the son at both his baptism and the transfiguration. What does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When the Lord Jesus, the son of God, refers to his father, he says, John 14, my father is greater than I. When he refers to the Holy Spirit, he says, Matthew 12, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. The Holy Spirit, we're told, does not bear witness to himself, but longs to glorify the Son and to exalt the Son. And so each of these divine persons points to the other in love and honor. And that is how God is. 
God is love. He's filled with love. Each person towards the other, filled with a sense of respect and, and giving honor to one another. And you know, that is how indeed we see the perfect ideal in God of how we should be in our thoughts towards one another, in our references towards one another, especially amongst the Lord's people. There should be that same divine quality of love and admiration and affection as far as that is possible. You know, it doesn't mean that we should say what we do not genuinely believe to be true, but as far as we can to make kind and generous references to one another and towards all. Reflect something of God. And within the, the Godhead, we know that the Lord Jesus has eternally dwelt in the place of greatest honor before his Father. Think of John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that concept of being with God is the idea of, of intimacy, if we can say that, a face-to-face communion. You know, the Son and the Father, face-to-face, as it were, from, from all eternity in their love and delight in one another. You know, there's another indication of that closeness later in the same passage. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. You know, that phrase indicating a, a supreme love, a supreme affection, a nearness, a, a precious relationship. And that's how we must begin. The Lord Jesus Christ has this love for the Father and love from the Father. And that is nearing something of what we are speaking here, of knowing this love of Christ, which passes knowledge. But I want you to see, too, that the Lord Jesus Christ loves his church. All those whom God the Father has given him from before the foundation of the world, these are his special people. They are his flock. They are his sheep, and he has taken upon himself the responsibility to bring them from a state of sin to a state of grace, and to bring them from a state of grace to a state of glory. And this responsibility has been laid upon him, and we call it Christ's particular love for his church. The whole number of God's chosen people, all those who are to be brought to glory, it is a remarkable thing, the extent of such wonderful love. And we need to understand that Christ loved us if we are believers within the church before we loved him. We must never think that Christ loves us because we love him. We love him because he first loved us. It is his love which brought us to love him. It is the love of Christ which wooed us and won the church to himself. He took that initiative and his love is therefore primary. And this love is free in Christ. It's not constrained by any obligation in his part. You know, there is no reason whatsoever why Christ should love us. There is no reason why Christ should love the church or the people of God except it was in himself to do so. And we marvel at the freeness of it. We can't earn Christ's love. We can't merit Christ's love. Friends, you know, many who claim to be Christians, even you know, those amongst the Lord's people can fall into the trap of thinking that, well, if I do this, if I, if I go to church and if I, if I read my Bible, if I, you know, take the ordinances, that, you know, I'm gaining the affection of Christ. 
Now I'll be in a better place to, to gain his love and to, to secure a place in his heart. That's not it at all. You know, we must not think of gaining or earning the love of Christ. His love is entirely free. He bestows it where he sees fit to bestow it. If we have received it and by the grace of God have come to saving faith, we can know that we are loved permanently with an everlasting love. And even though our love ebbs and flows, you know, one of the hymns says it, doesn't it? His love is steadfast. There is nothing fickle. There is nothing changeable about the love of Christ. His love is steadfast. And when he loves someone, it is permanent. He loves his own, even to the end. It's so different, sadly, from human love. You know, even in those seemingly best place to love, you know, you think even still the big weddings and then a few years later trouble strikes and the love which seemed so secure is, is on the rock but not the love of Christ. There will never be such a time when he will break off his affection for his people. This is love that passes knowledge in length and breadth and depth and height, infinite love bestowed upon all those whom the Father has given to him. And it's the same time it is a, a love which is unchangeable, it is perfect. There is nothing lacking in his love towards his people. You know, it is just a beautiful thing. You know, as one says, we may have a delightful friend, we may have an excellent husband, a wonderful wife or son or daughter or parent, but there is a limitation to their love. You know, at times they crack under the strain. At times their, their patience runs out, and I know mine does. At times they, they betray the fragility of their love, but never Christ. He loves his people with an everlasting love. And we are reassured here in our text that there is in this love perfection. It is love beyond all compare. It is glorious. It is great. It is high. It is holy. And if we have known anything of that love, it is the most important thing in our Christian lives that we should love him. You know, if as the Bible says, his love has a perfect fullness to it, you know, if, if we've been loved from before the foundation of the world, we'll be loved for all eternity. And surely we owe him everything. We owe him everything. He must be first and my life must be devoted to him. For me to live must be Christ. And my heart's desire must be to please him in all things. There's no other way. That's why the Bible shows us that the very first thing that God is looking at in your heart and in mine this morning is this. Do we love him? Do we love him? Granted that we believe in him, granted that we somewhat obey him and have longings to obey him, and though very poorly, but do we love him? Do we love him in a sense that he is more than everything to us? You know, we, we stood and sung earlier, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. Is that the affirmation of your heart? Do you remember the Savior's challenge to Simon Peter? Do you love me? We looked at it a number of weeks ago. Three times the question was asked, and it grieved Peter. You see, our Lord will challenge the love of his people's hearts. Why? Because it means so much to him. 
It's an astonishing thing. We think, you know, Lord, you are the eternal Son of God. You have the love of the Father. You know, the love of the Holy Spirit. You have the love of the angels. You don't need my poor affection. You know, I'm a beggar. Who am I that, that you should want my love? But he does. And he desires and demands and wishes for the love of all our hearts because he himself has the most wonderful and perfect love. And I put it to you this morning, put it to my own heart. Do we really love the Lord Jesus? Do we love him for who he is? You know, do we love him for who he is and what he has done, lived for us and died for us and rose again for us? Do you love him for what he is still doing, making intercession for us at the right hand of God? Do you love him because he is spiritually in union with you and you with him and you couldn't live without him? Do you love him like that? Because the Lord Jesus loves his church, loves his church with an everlasting and a permanent and a steadfast love. And we can know this. And then the love of Christ for individual believers. Let me bring it even further towards ourselves. You know, we must make it clear that the Lord Jesus loves his own now. You know, the love which made him suffer for us on the cross and die for us on the cross is the love which he still feels for us. You know, we can be very quick to forget that. I know I do. You know, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking of it like this. You know, when Jesus came to earth from the glory all those years ago, he loved us and he, he demonstrated that love for us by going to the cross to die for us. But then he rose again and he's ascended and exalted and he, he's gone back to heaven. And, and we won't really know a, a real experience of that love until we're in heaven and until we're with him. And what's left for us here in this in-between time is we wrestle on in this broken, dark world and the spiritual warfare and battles and we're facing the world and the flesh and the devil and we, we battle on every day and we just, you know, have to keep going and looking to the Lord and, you know, all those things. And that's, that's right in, in some measure as far as it goes. But we have to remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus loves us in the gospel and he loves us as much today as he ever did. That he thinks about us every moment of every day. You know, if one of the fellowship is sick or maybe going to hospital or is away and, you know, they're on our hearts. We think about them. We pray for them. You know, they're in our minds, they're on our hearts. If, if one of the Lord's people, if we know they're going through trials or, or sufferings or loss, there, there's that sense that, that we go through it with them because that's the way that, that genuine love in the fellowship is. We, we feel for one another. And that, that binds people together. And as a, a fellowship of the Lord's people, we shouldn't just be living our lives for ourselves, but with regard to one another. And so when one of the body hurts, we, we all hurt. And when one of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. That is the nature of the heart of the believer and, and the love of Christ in them. We're in fellowship together, united in Christ. Part of this precious spiritual family. But then how much more is that true with Christ? There is nothing hurts the Lord's people, but it attacks him. And he feels it in his human nature. He's all true, though glorified human nature. He feels for his people. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And what hurts his people grieves his heart. 
What makes us rejoice in that right way gives him joy. And this lovely sympathy of our, our great high priest through his person, through his office, through his ministry. And because that is so, it means that we can know and enjoy the love of Christ now, day by day in our experience. You know, when, not long after I began as pastor here, I read whatever I could get hold of by a man called Samuel Rutherford. He was a great Scottish covenanter and he was a Puritan. He was a man greatly used of God and he was devoted to serving the Lord Jesus. And amongst the many aspects of his works, his letters are particularly rich in a source of, of real refreshment. They are full concerning the love of Christ. And when Rutherford was a younger Christian, he thought that the only enjoyment of the love of Christ was going to be in heaven. You know, a little bit like what I was explaining earlier. And he didn't think of knowing and enjoying that, that love of Christ in this life. But by God's grace, as he grew in faith, he came to see that believers in this life can know much of the love of Christ which passes knowledge and as a result this fullness of God in joy and love and comfort. And at one stage in his life he was confined to Aberdeen which at that time was by all accounts a very dead place spiritually speaking. He'd been forced away from his own fellowship of Anwath and that had been full of life and blessing and, and God had really been at work there. But because of his commitment to biblical truth and opponents who hated Reformation teaching and the doctrines of grace, he was banned from preaching anywhere in Scotland by the established church. And away from his congregation and friends, in the crucible of trials, he would lose loved ones and family members. Christ came and met with him and thrilled his heart with heavenly joy. And despite his confinement and the restrictions placed upon him, he felt as though he was in a palace of gold and love because Christ was with him. And he wrote these stunning letters which flowed from this experience. You know, he said, Since I came to this prison, I have conceived a new and extraordinary opinion of Christ which I didn't have before. For I perceived that we postpone all of our joys of Christ till he and we be in our own house above. In other words, till we get to heaven. I thought Christ would give us nothing here but tears and sadnesses and crosses and that we should never feel the, the smell of the flowers of that high and heavenly garden above until we arrive there. But I find now that it is possible to find young glory and a young green paradise of joy even here. And I know that Christ's kisses will cast a more strong and refreshing smell of incomparable glory and joy in heaven than they do here, but even still, the glimpses come. And even though the greater experience is still ahead, we can have an abundant earnest of this joy and love right here in this life. And you see that, that similarity with what Paul is saying. He was in prison. He was prevented from this, this desire that he had to to travel and preach the gospel and to plant churches and to exalt Christ. And yet here, he's bound up in a prison cell, probably in Rome. It would have been so easy to give in to complaints and bitter disappointments and frustrations. But no, because there was more than the churches. 
There was more than travel that he had to enjoy. It was the love of Christ in his heart. And you know, as Paul writes under the inspiration, he wants all believers to know that. You know, maybe you've known those times in your walk with the Lord when you, you've risen up from prayer and your heart is, is overflowing with a sense of the love of Christ within your heart and soul. You know, a young glory begun below a taste of the even greater to come, but nonetheless a, a substantial enjoyment of that, that same love that we're destined through grace to enjoy in that better world forever. I wonder if you are pursuing those things in your Christian walk, your relationship with Christ, to be near to him. You know, if it's only ever duty, or you're just so consumed with the things of this life, or if you just constantly feel the inadequacy of trying to, to do the right thing, do this, do that, do that, you're missing it. We need Christ. We need more of him to know his love and to be taken up with him. That's when the other things fall into place. Doesn't mean that it's easy. But he is with us and we know it. And he can do this for you. You know, when preacher gave the following illustration, there was a very faithful man who pastored a church up in Scotland before he eventually was called over to America. And it was a small uh, Baptist church in Ayrshire. And I faithfully preached the gospel there for, for many, many years and, you know, sought to honor the Lord in that way. And on one occasion, a married couple came and the wife was well known in that local community as a drunkard. And uh, she was well known because she had to wear a caliper on her leg. And there were times when her husband, to try and stop her from going to drink, would, would hide the caliper so that she wouldn't be able to be mobile. But she was so determined to get to the place where she could get a drink, that she would tie a broom to her leg and she would hobble down there. Now, some of their friends were believers and, you know, they asked them constantly to go to the church. And eventually the couple said that they would go to one of the services and this lady with the drink problem, she thought that she would, she would go once and she could tick the box and, you know, that would be enough. And so they went along. And so they went in and she sat down with her husband and the service took place and Christ was preached and the pastor closed the service with a prayer and the people began to get up and to, to leave. And her husband turned to her and said, well, come on, it's time for us to go home. And with tears running down her face, she said, I don't want to leave. She said, I felt something in this place which I've not felt anywhere else. And as it happens, the Lord had broken into her life and she was converted. She had been overwhelmed with the love of the Savior, even for her, with all of her issues and her difficulties, with all of her drunkenness, that the Savior could love her and loved her enough to die for her. And her life was changed. And even though there were many battles, she had been given to taste that love of Christ which passes knowledge and she, she believed that the Lord Jesus loved her, went to the cross to deal with her sin, poured out his love upon her. Her life was changed. And there are so many testimonies like that. You go back further. Count Zinzendorf who wrote Jesus, thy blood and righteousness of the Moravians. That group used mightily for the gospel in the 18th century in Europe. And before Zinzendorf was a believer, he was in a place and he was looking at paintings and he came to one of, of Christ upon the cross. 
Now let me just say, I don't believe that we should have such paintings or images of the Savior. You know, I don't believe that that is right. But God in his grace is able to use such means when men are ignorant. And when Zinzendorf saw this, he read the caption at the bottom of the painting and it said this, all this I did for you. What have you done for me? And he knew that he'd never done anything for the Lord Jesus, that he didn't know the Lord Jesus, and he called on the Lord to be saved, and he committed to doing all he could because he loved the Savior, and he promoted the gospel and mission, spending his fruitful life seeking to enable hundreds and thousands of people to hear of Jesus. He was wooed by the love of the Savior. You see, Christianity isn't a list of rules to follow, things to do. It is a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And duty, yes, it's a part of the Christian life, but the motivation for what we do is because we love him. Love for the Savior. Love for the one who first loved us and continues to love us with an everlasting love. The expulsive power of a new affection. The love of Christ driving out love for other things. And you know, if you're not interested in that, I don't know why you're here. Because Christ should be everything to us. Knowing him, trusting him, spending time with him, learning of him, speaking with him. Who is Jesus? He is my dearest friend. And he is more real to me than you are. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that I love him with all my heart. And he is the son of God. He left heaven. He came to this earth. He suffered and he bled and he died. And he rose again. And my dear friend, I can tell you that he loves sinners. And he will save you if you ask him. And you will know him. And this wonderful love poured out in your heart. And you'll know that in all the difficulties, all those things that come, the circumstances which at times overwhelm us, you'll still know he is with you and he loves you and he will bring you through. You know, as we close, what happens to us when we know this love of Jesus? Friend, it makes us humble. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. You know, that's Paul. This great Man of God, that's not in his thoughts. You know, you can tell if a person has tasted the love of Christ because they become genuinely humble. It's not about them, it's about Jesus. So different to most of the people you meet in this world. They're, they're so full of themselves, their own importance, their own circumstances, you know, dismissive of anything that gets in the way. But when Christ has taken hold of you, when you've tasted the love of Christ, you're brought down from that mountain of pride. You know, Paul was a genius, perhaps the greatest preacher and theologian ever, apart from the Savior. What did he say of himself? He said, I'm not worthy to be called a Christian. The love of Christ destroys pride. It also makes us content. Whatever state we are in, even in a dungeon, we are content. We can sing the praises of God as Paul and Silas did at Philippi with our feet in the stocks because, you know, if we have Christ, we have everything. You know, we say that, but, but do we believe it? With Christ, we have everything. You know, how did those 
precious fathers in the faith, how did they go to the grave so readily? How were they willing to stand? Well, because they knew that if they had Christ, they had everything for them to live as Christ, to die as gain. They knew this love of Christ in their hearts. And you know, when we know that love of Jesus, it makes us certain and hopeful for the future that, that glory is ahead. You know, look at verse 20 of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You know, again, incredible words. God can and will do it. What's he going to do? What does he mean? Well, amidst many other things, the resurrection of the body. He will take us to heaven. He will fill us in heaven with the glory which we have but tasted here below. The love of Christ in heaven will overwhelm us. Heaven will be one eternal enjoyment of the love of Christ, only ever getting better as time, if we can speak of time and eternity, goes by. That's what it means to be a believer. Not a moral code, not just some you know, guidance for life, rules to get us through, even though by God's grace, when we're in Christ, we see those things and the word of God is our guide. But no, it is knowing Jesus. Knowing his love. Knowing life in him in all its fullness. And all those other things flow from that relationship to him and to his word. You know, one hymn writer put it so well when he said this, Jesus, thy boundless love to me, no thought can reach, no tongue declare. Oh, knit my thankful heart to thee and reign without a rival there. Do you know him? Are you pursuing your relationship with him? Christ alone, our hope in life and death. I pray that you would draw near to him and that you would know something of the reality of his love poured out in your heart, that love which passes knowledge and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.